0: Will you please stand and turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 2, our New Testament reading, which we'll consider ahead of our sermon text at the end of Judges 16. Okay, Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Now let's turn to Judges 16, where we will read the conclusion the life history of Samson, starting at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshdael in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we were faced with a kind of tricky question related to Jonah. So when Jonah is thrown overboard and the storm ceases at that point, should we think of that as bearing um, any kind of analogy to the work of Jesus, uh, where his life was sacrificed so that... um, the ship and uh, well, Jonah's life was sacrificed to the ship and the sailors would be spared. Is that kind of like Jesus sacrificing himself for us? And the answer you may remember, you may remember, was basically, "Oh, sort of, but be really careful because yes, Jonah is offering to sacrifice himself so that the sailors can be saved. But the reason for the storm is not the sailors' sin; it's Jonah's sin. So Jonah is not an innocent victim." offering himself as a substitute. Oh, I'll jump overboard for your sins so that you don't have to know. He's acknowledging, I have sinned. I've brought this judgment upon us all. And so in that sense, Jonah is very much unlike Jesus. But you see how in that very unlikeness, we actually can see Jesus revealed to us by contrast by that very contrast. See, sometimes the Old Testament gives us pictures, um, pictures of what Jesus' life and work would one day be like in the future. And they're very clear pictures, very clear correspondence between the Old Testament foreshadowing and the New Testament reality. Think about the priests making sacrifices in the temple and interceding for the people. You think about David standing up there and defeating Goliath and giving Israel peace through victory over their enemies later in his kingly reign and it's these things are teaching us about Jesus through those old testament heroes greatest successes right their greatest triumphs and faithful their their greatest moments of faithfulness but of course there are many many other times where the old testament teaches us about, teaches about Jesus in quite a different way and that is by showing us the old testament characters shortcomings showing us why they cannot be that Savior with a capital S that God's people really need because a sinful Savior can't ultimately save anybody, including himself. Including himself. But there are a few especially poignant times in the Old Testament where there is a dramatic intersection of both success and failure at the same time. This rich kind of meshing of comparison and contrast where we see simultaneously how how this person is both deeply like and deeply unlike the Lord Jesus, kind of in the same rich moment of time. I think that Jonah what we were talking about this morning, is one of the clearest examples of this in the Bible. And we know later we're going to talk about how Jesus specifically says his own death and resurrection is going to be the sign of Jonah, who was three days in the belly of the fish and so on. But I think one of the other clearest examples of this intersection of success and failure, comparison and contrast with the coming Savior of God's people is Samson. Samson's a great example of what I'm talking about here. Because in tonight's passage, what do you see? You see Samson mocked by the enemies of God. You see him praying to God in his hour of greatest humiliation right before his death. You see him in the moment of his death winning his greatest victory over the enemies of God for the good of the people of God. What clearer picture of the death of Jesus could you ask for? You start thinking at first when that's the only side of things you look at. He's, he's even got. He's even got. We could go really crazy with. It. He's even got his his arms stretched out on either side, the left and right, kind of like kind of like the cross. And you can see how we could be tempted just to make this kind of an allegory, just to see those resemblances, but forget about what's actually happening in the life story of Samson. You 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 you, you remember who Samson actually is, and and you say, wait, wait wait wait, Samson. Of all people, how can Samson possibly be picturing, foreshadowing the sufferings and the victory of Jesus? Is that what's really going on? Is is Samson, to use a theological term, a a type of Christ, if you're familiar with that language? And the answer is similar to the one we gave for Jonah. The answer is sort of, but be careful. Because the connection between Samson and Christ, the way that Samson's life story teaches us about Jesus, is found at least as much by contrast as it is by comparison. Um, So let's flesh this out a little bit as we look through this conclusion of Samson's life story. And we're going to do this in three parts. First, the jeering crowd, verses 23 to 27. Second, the praying sinner, verses 28 to verse 30a roughly, and then third, the dying deliverer from there to the end. So the jeering crowd, the praying sinner, and the dying deliverer. All right. so verse 23 sets the stage for this whole uh, ending episode. It sets the stage for us to take the shape of a showdown. Um, not so much between Samson and the Philistines. This is not like a David and Goliath scene. No, this is going to be a showdown between the Lord and the Philistine god Dagon. It's quite similar, in fact, um, to that whole story arc that you find near the beginning of 1 Samuel, where you remember how the Ark of the Covenant gets captured and brought into the temple of Dagon. Remember how the statue of Dagon falls down flat and the the head and the hands come off in the presence of of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, we should remember that that the life of Samson is chronologically probably quite close, actually, to the lives of Samuel and Saul and David came shortly after. And so we're, we're very, very close here to the end of the period of the judges and the beginning of the monarchy. And so we want to pay attention here um, as the lords of the Philistines gather to offer this great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. And what they're doing is they're giving Dagon the credit for Samson being in captivity. Our God has given Samson into our hand, they say. And it's not just the leaders. It goes on following their example. It's all of the people. It says they praised their God for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand. So we have to ask the question, is that true? Is that true? Has Dagon prevailed over Samson? Well, the answer is no. And it's not just no sort of, no, it's a hard no. There's not even a grain of truth in this because it is not Dagon at all who has given Samson into the hands of the Philistines. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who has done this, who has given Samson over to them. See, the Philistine god, Dagon, is getting credit, he's getting glory here that actually belongs to the Lord. And so what's going to happen is the Lord is going to step in here to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his preeminence over Dagon and all the other false gods of the Philistines in this way, that in their greatest moment of triumph, the Lord is going to bring about their greatest defeat. Um, So you can see how the people are getting to this uh, kind of emotional peak of their worship service to Dagon, right? They're, they're all excited that the religious enthusiasm is just flowing. Um, this is a, a good illustration, just as an aside, of how um, a sense of enthusiasm and religious fervor is not a guarantee that the worship that's going on is actually pleasing to the Lord. Some people kind of measure how effective or, or pleasing to God our worship is by the emotional intensity of it. We have to remember that every religion can produce emotional intensity in its, worship, in its worshipers. False religion can create this emotional high of a feeling of worshipfulness. So that feeling of worshipfulness is not an effective measurement of how faithful our worship is or how pleasing to the Lord. Uh, so anyway, so they're, they're at this emotional peak of their worship service to Dagon, and they say, you know what would just make this... Even better is if we get that enemy, Samson, that we have in captivity. We bring him out here and we make him entertain us. Let's really humiliate Samson. Let's gloat over this defeated foe. Um, And here's the, the first place, I think, where we can see Samson presented to us by the Holy Spirit as both like and yet unlike the Lord Jesus You can think of Samson here as stricken and smitten and afflicted. You can think of him with foes insulting his distress. Many hands raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. By foes derided, with grief and shame weighed down. Now scornfully surrounded, despised and gory, bearing shame and scoffing rude. All of those Rich, precious ways that we describe the sufferings of Jesus. Not just on the cross, but think about before that, during his his arrest and trial, the mockery of the Roman soldiers, the insults of the temple leaders, and the condemning roar of the crowd. Think about David in Psalm 22, how he says, Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They stare and gloat over me. This is the kind of thing that Samson is enduring here, encircled by his Philistine enemies, staring and gloating over him. Then you remember why is this happening to Samson? What put him in this situation? Samson has brought all of this upon himself. Every bit of what he is experiencing here, he has richly deserved. See, when we look at Jesus, we say some other things too, right? We say, who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. But you see, with Samson, that's not what's going on at all. You could say, ah, unholy Samson, how have you offended? How you have offended But then, you go back on the other hand again. Back on the other hand. Yes, Samson has acted very wickedly. Yes, Samson really does deserve all kinds of bad consequences for his actions. Uh, but of course, that's because of his sins against against God, right? Samson deserves the judgment of God. But of course, um, the, Sam, the Philistines are not harassing uh, Samson because of his disobedience to the Lord. They don't care about his sins against the Lord. They care about the trouble that he's caused against them, all the Philistines that he's killed. That's why they're mad at Samson. Um, and, uh, of course, those defeats of the Philistines, those that was the one thing in his life that he did that actually was on mission, that's actually what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to fight Philistines. And so from a divine point of view, Samson deserves suffering. But from the Philistine side of things... Well they have what, what right do they have to be Samson's judge? What right do they have to uh, gloat over and harass the servant of the Lord in this way? See, relative to the Philistines, Samson is still God's man. He is still God's servant. He is still God's instrument to bring his judgment, God's judgment to bear against these Philistines and their idol Dagon. flawed and ungodly though that servant of God may be. He, as an Israelite in this circumstance, represents the people of God in a sense of representing the Lord himself. It's a very profound mixture of kind of themes coming together here then. So with that in the background, understanding what it means for Samson to be encircled by these Philistines gloating over him. Let's go on then and see how Samson reacts. What does Samson say in this moment of crisis? And this is number two, the praying sinner. This is yet another place where we can see Samson as sort of like and yet very unlike the Lord Jesus. Um, you know, the commentators I looked at in this section tended uh, to be very hard on Samson here. They tended to uh, criticize this prayer pretty harshly as being a very self-centered prayer. Um, and they have a point. Um, this prayer Samson prays, is, uh, it's not all that inspirational. It's not this soul-stirring prayer of just... Tremendous faith and spiritual insight, right? You don't get the sense here that Samson has really changed, that he's deeply repented, or that he's suddenly become this holy hero. Um, when what you hear him ask God for is, he says, Strengthen me only this once that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. See, this is a prayer for personal revenge. And we could wish that Samson might have had the spiritual. Insight here—the kind of broader view of his office as a judge, and his his calling, given to his, as stated to his parents—to be a leader of the covenant people. Um, we could we could wish that he might have asked for more than just personal revenge. I just want to be avenged on the Philistines for these two eyes that they put out. So the commentators have a point to criticize this prayer a little bit, but on the other hand, I think they might be a little too harsh because there is a bright spot here. It is significant. That in this moment, for just the second time, only the second time in Samson's life story, we do indeed hear Samson here calling on the covenant name of God. Oh, Lord God. And you can see the word God there in small capital letters. Um, Usually it's the word Lord you see in small capital letters. The reason it's God here is because there's another Hebrew word translated Lord uh, back to back with that covenant name of God. And so instead of saying Lord, Lord, they translate it Lord God and put the God in capital letters. Anyway, it's showing that's the covenant name of God, God's proper name that he's given to Israel. And um, the, the one other time that Samson prayed this way was at the end of chapter 15, when God, remember, split open the ground to give Samson water when he was about to die of thirst. And so what we hear from Samson here is not... A heroic prayer. It's not a kind of super spiritual prayer. It's not an amazing prayer that you're going to calligraphy and put up on your wall in your house, um, although that would be a very interesting conversation starter. It's not that kind of inspirational, super spiritual prayer. However, it matters who he has directed this prayer to, that in this moment of crisis, he is crying out to the Lord. This is not a remarkable prayer, but it is a true prayer from a humbled, devastated soul of a terrible sinner brought utterly to the end of himself. And in this moment, he is relying then not on himself, but he is turning to the Lord and he is saying, Lord, remember me. Lord, please strengthen me this one more time. Out of the depths, he is crying. And in that sense, I think we get a pale, very pale, but very real glimpse of the prayers of Jesus. The prayers that Jesus would one day pray from the cross, crying out to God, committing himself into his Father's hand, except that Jesus' prayers were were all of those things that we might wish Samson's prayer had been and wasn't. Holy pure and perfectly trusting, perfectly on mission, obedient to the work that Jesus had been given to do. We could, wish, um, we could wish that Samson might have had more than just himself in mind, that he might have had the nation of Israel, for example, in mind, and his, his uh, responsibility to lead them all and represent them all when he prayed. Not just give me personal revenge, but, but Lord, won't you use me to begin to save Israel from the Philistines like you told my parents would be my life's calling? Samson didn't pray that way, but you can know for sure that when Jesus was on the cross, he knew what he was suffering for. He knew why he was there. He knew whom he was suffering for. He knew he was suffering for his people, that he was suffering for you, in fact. He was bringing many sons to glory through what he suffered. of course, the clearest place in this passage, I think, where we see Samson being like and yet unlike Jesus is in the moment of his death. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. All right. Have our two hands again. On the one hand, this is a tragic ending. This is not a happy ending the life of Samson. It's a tragic ending of a tragic man's very tragic life. What a terrible outcome. To die surrounded by your enemies, not a friend in sight, knowing that you have failed completely in your life's calling, that you've been utterly humiliated, and that your only hope at this last moment of your life is to take as many of the enemy with you as you can. Yeah, this is not a happy ending. The same commentators who are really hard on Samson for praying a kind of selfish prayer for revenge uh, tend also to be very hard on him here, too where it says he killed more Philistines in his death than in his life. And their perspective is basically, what a negative commentary on his life. If his greatest achievement is when he's dying, think of how much more he could have done during his life if he had embraced the mission that he was supposed to have of of leading Israel against the Philistines. If when he was alive and free, he just could have done so much more, and he didn't. What a missed opportunity. And again, I'm not sure they're completely wrong about that. I I think that's a legitimate um, criticism. There's no doubt Samson left a lot on the field in terms of his potential and the way he actually ended up leading Israel. But I also think that, again, that perspective is incomplete. Remember that Samson's life story is not only about who Samson was and about what Samson did, as in the lives of all of the judges, Samson's life story is about, ultimately, the Lord. It's about who the Lord is and what the Lord was doing through Samson's life. Remember that final scene. Uh, remember that this final scene here of Samson's life is set up from the beginning as a showdown between the Lord and Dagon, the Philistine false god. Uh, not too much unlike, you could compare it with Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, I think One of the commentators makes that comparison too. And so what happens here as as this temple comes crashing down and the worshipers of Dagon are are crushed along with Samson, we want to focus on what is the Lord doing here? And what the Lord is doing is the Lord is decisively defeating the false god Dagon. He is declaring a major victory over the enemy that has been oppressing his covenant people. So yes, this is a tragic, sad ending to the biography of Samson. But at the very same time, it is also a triumph in the history of what God is doing in this book. A triumph in the history of God's gracious, supernatural, saving intrusions of power and mercy and deliverance into the history of his undeserving, sinful, suffering people and their undeserving, sinful and suffering leaders. The defeat of the Philistines here is good news for Israel. It's good news for Israel, and it shows that the Lord is going to do for Israel what Samson could not do, did not do, failed to do, never never really consciously tried to do. That is to use his strength for the salvation of the nation. To win a victory on Israel's behalf that Israel, including its very mightiest champion, Samson, could not win for themselves. That's what the Lord is doing. And he's doing it through Samson. That's what makes it all the more remarkable. And so while Samson's death is, in one sense, an ultimate defeat, not just a defeat, but an ultimate defeat. Let me die with the Philistines grouped together with them, sharing their fate. In another sense, it's a great victory. It's not Samson's victory, it's the Lord's victory. The Lord's victory, and not just that. But it also teaches us something. It teaches us something about the way, the manner in which God wins his greatest victories. The way that God intends to not just once, but repeatedly in history, to carry out his plan of salvation. It teaches us the pattern of God's saving work, the shape of God's plan of salvation. It teaches us that the Lord intends to win his greatest victories through what outwardly looks like defeat. And it is in that way And I think that we can responsibly say that the death of Samson, yes, points us to Jesus' death on the cross. Because on the cross it was indeed through death that Jesus destroyed the one who holds the power of death. And delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery as we read earlier from Hebrews 2 it was through suffering, it was through humiliation, through the mockery and the insults and the jeers of the crowd that God planned for his servant Jesus to make his way doggedly along that path of suffering that leads to glory. Now as we wrap up this sermon in this section of Judges. I want to take a moment to think back over the whole life of Samson draw some applications from it um, as a whole, looking back on the whole thing. The first thing I want to impress on you as we leave Samson's history behind is to remember who you are. Remember who you are. Um, Samson before he was even born, was given an identity and a calling by God. He was not only to be an Israelite, which, by the way, was a high and holy privilege all by itself, just to be part of the covenant people. But more than that, Samson was to be a Nazarite. He was to be separated for God. He was to be devoted entirely, his whole self devoted to holiness, from womb to tomb. He was also given a mission, Uh, the mission that he was to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. That was to be his life's work. Samson spends so much of his life careless of that identity and neglecting that mission. Um, And where we see Samson getting into the worst trouble in his life is when he is the most careless of that identity and the most neglectful of that mission, that calling. See, when it came to Samson's actual decisions, his priorities, what was shaping the choices that he made that directed the course of his daily life, he simply was not keeping that identity and that mission, that calling, in view. Instead, he was substituting something else, right? He was living instead for himself, for his impulses, for his ambitions, for his appetites, his desires, his his personal happiness. That's what he was living for, period. Samson wanted Samson to be happy. We have to remember that you and I have an identity and a calling given to us by God. This is quite different from the way the majority of the world thinks about identity and destiny. In the majority of the world, your identity is whatever you decide you want to be and your destiny is is whatever you want to do. but That's not true for us. We are children of God. We're united to Christ. We belong to Him. God calls you a saint. Believe that. God calls you a saint. He calls you one of His holy ones. He has set you apart from the world to belong to Him in a special way. In fact... He has made that calling so concrete, physical, that he has put water on you and declared his name over you. That triune name of God has been placed upon you in an indelible way. You can never be unbaptized. That is who you are. When temptation comes and it is strong staring you in the face tempting you to do what God has forbidden or neglect what God has commanded, you remember Who you are. When big life decisions come along, and you're faced with a fork in the road, you start by remembering who you are. When suffering comes, you've got to remember who you are. When death comes, to remember who you are. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to God. Remember who you are. Second, remember who your enemy is. Remember who your enemy is. Samson was called from birth to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. He was supposed to view the Philistines as his mortal enemies, as the oppressors of the covenant people. And he was supposed to deliver Israel from them. He was supposed to protect the Israelites from these Philistine predators. But the only reason Samson ever ended up actually fighting any Philistines was when they offended him personally. If it was up to him, if it was up to Samson, he would have just settled down amongst them and more or less actually become one of them. It would have been the practical impact of all of that. See, so often you and I find ourselves tempted to cozy up to that which we ought to be at war with to seek to make peace, to make room for what we ought to be actually resisting and putting to death in our lives. We get confused, lose our perspective. Don't forget that you are at war as a Christian. And remember who your enemy is. It's been said, remember that the world is not your friend. Remember who you are. Remember who your enemy is. Finally, remember who God is. Of course, this is the most important of all. In Samson's story, we see that God is a powerful God. He's able to work, even through horribly flawed and sinful servants, to accomplish all kinds of good for his people who don't deserve it themselves. We've also learned that God is pleased to bring about great victory by an unexpected path, by the unexpected path of suffering, humiliation, defeat. What I want us to remember as we leave this story behind is that what God did through weak and sinful Samson was just a a foretaste of the plan that he would later carry out in a much greater way in the Lord Jesus, the one who through death destroyed the one who holds the power of death. And the thing is, that same God who hasn't changed, whose way of doing things hasn't changed, is continuing to work in that same way today through his church. He is still insisting on doing his work through weak and sinful and messed up men and women like you and I are. And to use us to accomplish All kinds of good in the world for which only he should get an ounce of the glory. And whenever along the way that path that he's calling us on feels like a path of humiliation, a path of difficulty, even when it feels like the valley of the shadow of death, that doesn't mean that you are somehow, have somehow gotten off plan or outside his will or something like that because now I'm suffering, I must be outside of God's plan for my life. No. What it means is that you now have an opportunity to watch and wait and to see with eager anticipation how this time, this time, how is the Lord going to do it? This time, how is the Lord going to bring his victory out of my defeat? How is... The Lord going to bring good out of evil and joy out of sorrow and deliverance out of death again. He did it for Israel through Samson. He did it for us and for all of his people through Christ. And he is doing the same thing now in you and through you in Christ. Let's pray. Our God, thank you once again, as we have many times already, for the life of Samson, for your work in him and through him in spite of all his wickedness. Lord, we ask that you would please humble us by reminding us of how like him we are in the worst kinds of ways. Lord, teach us also through his life story to remember who we are Remember who our enemy is and to remember who you are. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.